Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Very well-known, famous passage. And uh, really, one of the um, highlights of history, let's call it that, the Apostle Paul, by himself, in the, the cultural center of the world... <laughs> The Apostle Paul by himself in the cultural center of the world. We live, I don't have to tell you this, but we live in in uncertain, changing times. It seems as though we're, we're caught off guard and surprised every week by something and we say, wow. And the pace of change continues to, to, to quicken. Somebody sent me a, um, a link the other day that I... I opened, and um, be careful about the links you get. You might get viruses. But this was a good one. I opened it up, and it was amazing. It was a, a speech that led to a prayer on one of the, I don't, I don't know, one of the most important days of the 20th century. It was a prayer, it was a brief introduction to this prayer, and then this prayer uh, where the President of the United States uh, led uh, the United States in a prayer on June 6, 1944, D-Day. I was was struck by the language. Let me just read you just a little bit. He calls a nation to join him in prayer, and he says, Our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor... And struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization. He goes on to ask God for mercy and grace, protection and guidance. And he closes this prayer by saying, Help us to rededicate ourselves to renewed faith in Thee. And here's how he ends it. Thy will be done, Almighty God. Times have changed. It wasn't that long ago that the two preeminent, two of the preeminent publications in the world, the London Times and the New York Times, published on Monday mornings sermons by evangelical preachers. The New York Times had the sermons of Charles Spurgeon, conservative Baptist preacher, wired across the Atlantic so they could make sure they had those sermons in their newspaper first thing on Monday morning. When's the last time you saw a conservative, Bible-believing, Bible-saturated sermon in the New York Times? Um, Times have changed. In fact, I was in a teaching setting, you know, the whole idea of a newspaper. I was in a teaching setting where most of the people in the room didn't have Bibles with pages between covers. They had screens. To say, turn on your screens to Romans 8. Wow. Uh, Lots of things are uh, changing. We're sort of multi-everything. I think, I believe, I sort of (laughs) know that uh, the United States may very well be the most religiously diverse, diverse nation in the world. There are well over 15,000 religious organizations in the United States. 
We have a Hindu temple in Brandon. We have a Buddhist monastery in Batesville. We have several Islamic mosques. We have a bookstore right across the road um, that has titles of books like this, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. The Yoga of Jesus. Spirituality for Dummies. And some that are a little bit more serious, like Wicca and Witchcraft for Dummies. Aisles of books on spiritual things, transcendent, stuff that might be out there that will give us power that we can harness. But you know what's great, in a sense, about all this craziness? It puts us closer to the first century world and makes the New Testament even more real and relevant to our lives, as we're going to see in just a moment. Because Paul, we're going to see the Apostle Paul walk into Athens. And Athens is full of highly cultured, brilliant, successful, accomplished people who have no idea whatsoever of any biblical content. They don't know the Old Testament. They don't know who Moses is. They don't know who Abraham is. They don't know the Old Testament. They don't know the Bible. They don't know the Bible. It's pluralistic. There are gods and worldviews and ways of understanding life everywhere in Athens. And there are idols everywhere, wood and stone and marble and in hearts and in imaginations. So, what does the Apostle Paul do in this setting in Athens? What does he say? Well, whatever he said (laughs) turned the world upside down. Whatever he says about the good news about Jesus Christ and the resurrection transformed the Greco-Roman world. And that particular ancient world was never the same after they heard this message, whatever it is. Let's find out what it is. It changed that world. It can change ours. First, let's read Acts 17. I'll read uh, verse 16 through 34. The Apostle Paul in Athens. While Paul was waiting for them, some of his disciples in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happen to be there. Notice, let's notice what Paul is doing here. In the marketplace, day by day, with those who happen to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he, seemed to be, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where he said to them, where they said to him, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. Fascinating statement. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Now, let's notice a couple of things about what's... There's a lot, lot going on here, but there's, there's a few things that are essential. Essential to the question of why we would believe, why Paul would, would, would believe that Jesus Christ is the exclusive, the only way, truth, and life. Let's, let's first of all, notice... This is so wonderful about the, the Apostle Paul. Whatever this good news is, it's for everyone. Paul walks into Athens by himself, and it's fascinating. Paul isn't tempted to sort of do Athens and to walk around and admire the art, although, you know, Paul was a graduate of the University of Tarsus and the University of Jerusalem. He's a sharp guy. 
but he was distressed. He was deeply troubled by the idolatry that he saw. But he didn't say, there's no hope for these people. These are Greeks. There's been, there, there, there's been no hope for them for a long time. He goes as he normally does when he enters a city. He goes into the synagogue and he reasons with the Jews. He goes on the Sabbath day to worship into the synagogue. And no doubt he tells the Jews about Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament covenant promises to God's people. He's in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. We could say, if we want to apply that today, it's the church. This good news is for the people who gather on the Lord's day, the Sabbath day, to worship. It's for you and everybody you bring in here. And everybody who comes once or twice a year. And everybody who's central and everybody who's on the fringes. It's for Highlands. It's for the church. But then he goes out into the marketplace and he, he talks to... Now, we're not all gifted this way, I recognize, but look at what Paul does. People that come across his path, he talks to them, he dialogues with them, sort of like a, sort of a Christian Socrates type. He just walks around talking to people about Jesus. Nothing real complicated about that. And all kinds of people cross his path. And he tells them this good news about Jesus... And the resurrection. And then he bumps into some folks. And these are, you know, we don't talk about Epicureans and Stoics much. But let me tell you about these people. See if you don't recognize these people. They're everywhere. Today. Out there. In here, maybe. Uh, The Epicureans believe that if there is a God... There might very well be a God, but he's so distant and so way out there that he's really rather irrelevant to my actual daily common sense practical life. So the goal of my life essentially is to avoid hard things, avoid pain and pursue pleasure. That's pretty much everywhere. Listen to this. The art of life is the art of avoiding pain. And the most effectual means of being secure against pain is to go within ourselves and look to our own happiness. Those are the only pleasures a wise man can count on. Now, that's Epicurean, but it's actually Thomas Jefferson. The same guy that wrote Life, Liberty, and Pursuit of Happiness. Now, I'm all for the declaration. Don't get me wrong. But Thomas Thomas Jefferson was confused about a lot of things and... He's a founding father. The Epicureans. Well, what about the Stoics? The Stoics say, see if you recognize these folks, God is everywhere and he's in everything. He's in trees and rocks and water and people and chairs and pianos and and microphones. He's everywhere. He's this all-pervasive, impersonal spirit that is in everything and in everyone and everywhere. So just get used to it. It is what it is. There's nothing you can do about it. Make the best of it. Don't worry about the hocus pocus. Don't worry about God. Don't worry about any kind of personal God, a personal relationship with a God. Don't worry about salvation. Don't worry about sin. It is what it is.
Get used to it. Step into it. Suck it up. Move on. I think those folks are, are around today. And Paul is talking to these people. He's interacting with them. So how does this apply? It applies to you when you're on out in the marketplace, when you're on the soccer field, when you're on the baseball field, when you're at school, when you're at work, when you're going for a walk, when your neighbor... Um, I mentioned, uh, mentioned some of you a few weeks ago, we had, had a, a women's Bible study at our house and some people, some of the women had never been there before, so to our house, and they got the wrong house, and they were they were going to the house next door. The house next door was having an event, um, and um, some of these women ended up go- walking into that event, and and they would knock at the door, and there was a lady that would answer and say, well, um, and, and would say, what what do y'all, what's going on here? And fi- they they realized eventually they were at the very wrong event because our neighbor, this is classic, our neighbors. We're having uh, an interpretive dream night uh, where they came and talked about what the spirits were telling. It's a strange, it's just a normal neighborhood, but uh, I guess it's not normal. I live there, but, uh, but they were interpreting dreams and trying to get in touch with the same things that Stoics, Stoics and Epicureans might whatever's out there and here we are next door and there's a group of women and they're just studying something like well they were doing mere christianity what a contrast interpreting dreams mere christianity hey that is the world in which we live it's the neighborhood in which i live i think you're there too so what do we do we try to build a relationship with our neighbors we try to be in and out of their home um, but you know, you have an advantage over me. You're not preachers. People run sometimes when they see preachers. But we all do the best we can in the marketplace, in the agora, the marketplace. Wherever we are, with that, whatever gifts we have, this, whatever it is, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the re- resurrection is for everyone. Well, then he goes to the Areopagus. These guys are the smart of the smart. We don't necessarily have an analogy, but you could think of this. Uh, your, the combined faculties of all of your local universities. Um, and Paul is invited to come and address these people. I can't imagine, let's face it, a more hostile environment for, for the gospel. And Paul walks in, and, 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 and of course they, they sneer, and he never finishes his sermon. This is a hard on a preacher. He didn't even get his last point out before they cut him off and run him off. This is for everyone. Okay, it's for everyone. What is it? First thing we, we, has to, we have to grasp here is this good news about Jesus is, is rooted, rooted in the resurrection. No resurrection, no church. No resurrection, no Jesus is the only way. No resurrection, no salvation. No resurrection, no heaven. Paul emphasizes this. Paul was preaching the good news, again, about Jesus and the resurrection. 
Uh, he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is right at the heart of this good news. If this is true, and if Jesus is the only one who was ever raised bodily from the dead and ascended into heaven to the right hand of God the Father, it doesn't matter if you think a lot of people in church are hypocrites. If you wonder how, it does matter, but it changes the nature of the question. If Jesus is standing there having conquered death and is in heaven, fully God and fully man in bodily form, your questions are going to change. But I don't believe in the resurrection, you say. Let me just offer a couple of things. We've only got 15 minutes. (laughs) Let me offer just, just a couple of things. One, nobody was expecting Jesus Christ to be bodily raised from the... The disciples weren't expecting it. They had given up. They had left. They had denied. I do not know him. They were sad. They were defeated. It wasn't within their worldview to think that Jesus was going to be raised bodily from the dead. Uh, Many Jews thought that maybe at the end of time there would be a bodily resurrection, but the idea of somebody being raised from the dead, a single man, they weren't expecting that. The Greeks got downright angry. No, 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 no. The goal of life is to escape life. The goal of, of, of living in this body, in this life, is to escape this body, to escape this world, to a disembodied state. No bodies, no pain, no earth, no physical stuff. Physical stuff, matter, is bad. The goal is to escape it. And then all of a sudden, (laughs) a whole new worldview is launched with a resurrection. All of a sudden, people start claiming hundreds, hundreds of eyewitnesses start claiming that they saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead. A recent book called What's Heaven? It was written by um, Maria Shriver. I think she's uh, recently divorced to uh, Arnold uh, Schwarzenegger. Uh, But she wrote a book called What's Heaven? And she wrote this book for children. Listen to this. Listen to what she says about the goal of life and heaven and what we experience. Heaven is somewhere you believe in. It's a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. At night, you can sit next to the stars, which are the brightest of anywhere in the universe. If you're good throughout your life, you get to go there. When your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to take you up into heaven and be with him. Now, grandma is alive in me. Most important, she taught me to believe in myself. Now, don't ask me to explain all of that. But, but the, the point is, it's a disembodied state floating around in the clouds while being a part of everything else, this sort of impersonal universal spirit. And it's just right out of Greek thinking. 
and it's everywhere. Well, suddenly, hundreds of people, and I, I don't have time to flesh all this out, but suddenly hundreds of people saying, we saw Jesus Christ bodily, physically, raised from the dead. And he walked through doors, not because he was less real than the door, but because he was more real than the door. We saw him conquer death. And the New Testament letters, the New Testament epistles, are written within the time and space of these eyewitnesses. And Paul, a number of times, says, names people, gives people's names. Ask them, in these public documents written to the churches, ask them. They'll tell you. They saw. And the radical changes in people's lives... A new worldview is launched. The church is launched. People start traveling and telling people about the risen Christ. He is raised. He's conquered death. Men and women begin to give their lives for this truth, this doctrine, this event. The resurrection. Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. New bodies, glorified bodies, new earth, new heavens, new earth, glorified earth. Jesus didn't just come to die and be resurrected. Paul is saying to these people in Athens and and in Rome, just so you can go to heaven, he came to redeem you, the church, and the entire creation and to glorify it and rescue it. To make it right. That's why we have this sense. You know we love this life. We love this world. We love these. But it's broken. And it hurts. And it's painful. The resurrection will bring about redemption of our bodies. And our souls. And our spirits. And our world. Who wouldn't want that? Um, one of the greatest living experts on the resurrection says this, Christian writer, obviously. The early, Christ, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting that kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience Uh, would have invented it no matter how guilty they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures. The message of the resurrection is that this world matters. The the pain in this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing and justice and love have won. Right at the heart of this good news is that Jesus Christ has come and lived and died and conquered death and been resurrected and is at the Lord's right hand right now and we're worshiping him right now and he's even interceding for us right now. Finally, um, 
this, this one more observation. This good news about Jesus is communicated through personal relationships. And, you know, we hear those terms a lot, don't we? Personal relationships with so many people. So many people right now are looking for and worshiping and being drawn into impersonal, world-pervading, all-soul, transcendental kind of spirits out there. This is personal. It's relational. Paul does not say about the people in Athens, those, there's no hope for them. They're Greeks. I am not going into that city by myself. He goes in there personally and relationally. And he goes. He goes with this message. He goes with boldness and courage with this message. And some, some sneered, some rejected, some believed. But more importantly, God's personal relationship with us, and let me say this just very quickly. Um, Paul is not trying to rationally prove the existence of God and the exclusivity of Jesus in this passage. He's not trying to explain God rationally. He's trying to explain, please get this. He's not trying to explain God rationally. He's trying to explain God relationally. Relationally, because he knows that we're made in the image of God and, and, and this will click with us. I remember when I was in college, back when the crust of the earth was cooling, and I was sitting in a philosophy. I'm a little strange. You'll get to know me. I, w- I, I, um, I was sitting in a philosophy class. and was, The whole class was on Friedrich Nietzsche. And, and I remember the teacher standing up in the front and saying, Now, class, oh, by the way, this was at this august place of holy, godly learning, the University of Texas. And, and, and the, the teacher up at the front says, you know, class, you need to realize that there are some people out there that still believe that people are born sinful. And it didn't take them long to realize. I was, and I was fairly quiet, but I was the only one in the class that believed in original sin. But I was surrounded by original sin in the class. And they were denying it. You know, people really believe that stuff? They were saying? People still really really believe that? Well, I was convinced that I was going to prove the existence of God to my philosophy teacher. So I took Thomas Aquinas' five proofs for the existence of God. I fleshed them out in my own language. I turned it in, and he turned it back, and he just destroyed every one of those proofs for the existence of God. And I thought, well, this isn't... There's getting, I'm going to have to take a different approach. Here's the approach... Right here. What is Paul saying? He's saying God's not an idol. He's personal. He created you. He sustains you. He rules you. And he gives you your life and breath. He says he's our father. We're his offspring. Seek him. He wants you to reach out. That language is relational. He wants you to seek him and reach out to him. That's what Paul says. 
It's not rational. It's irrational. It makes sense, but it's relational. It's relational language. Um, he's personal. He's relational. He's also just. He will judge. He will make things right. Who doesn't want justice? Everybody in their hearts wonders, where's justice? When will justice be done? And how do we know all of this is true? Obviously by the power of the Holy Spirit, but we have a God who suffers for us. And he can't be raised from the dead unless he's first dead. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. My life for theirs. I love the old hymn, Man of Sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to proclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Close with this. One of the giants of the 20th century, and I guess we could say early 21st century, giant Christians of that time died a week ago. Charles Colson. And most of you probably are somewhat familiar with his name. Some of you remember him. He was a accomplished. In fact, he's going to be buried in Quantico, Virginia. He's still proud of being a Marine. Memorial services in May. Uh, but but he, he was a Marine. He, was an, he went to an Ivy League school. He was a Marine. He was an attorney. And he was Richard Nixon's hatchet man. And this, this guy was brutal. Um, and I never forget, I was involved in the ministry years ago, um, and I was, it was only 19 or 20 years old. It was a, con- it was a conference center in Texas called Pine Cove, and it was right after Colson had been converted to Christianity, and he wanted to use our facility to have a retreat for prisoners and their families. So all the, and we were a little, you know, okay, you know, we, I guess he, you know, we were suspicious of him. Is he really a Christian? We were suspicious of the prisoners. Are they really Christians? But, you know, we stepped out in faith. And all these prisoners came, uh, several hundred of them, with their uh, spouses. They were mainly men with their wives and their children. Met them there. It was amazing. It was an amazing weekend to see what Jesus, what the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ and the resurrection had done in this man's life. And never forget his opening words. Uh, he got up and everybody was in the room. Um, there were some staff people and some workers in prison fellowship. He started this ministry of prison fellowship. And he says, I want to welcome you, all of you. Welcome all of you who have been caught. And the rest of you who will be. What was he saying? We are all prisoners to our own idols. If Jesus Christ is not personally, relationally, having been resurrected at the center of your life and heart, you are a prisoner to an idol, probably a prisoner to several. I'll close with this. Um, there was a, a man who had been greatly influenced by Colson. He greatly influenced thousands of people, but wrote in uh, just five days ago in the Washington Post, 
says this about uh, Chuck Colson. And it struck me as I was wrestling through this passage. He says, The destruction of Chuck's career as an attorney, as a politician, the destruction of Chuck's career freed up his skills for a calling he would have never chosen and provided fulfillment, I love this, provided fulfillment beyond his ambitions. I often heard him say, Bless you, prison, for having been in my life. His life was a broad arc from politics to prison to humanitarianism. But no one was better prepared for death. No one, I love this, No, this is in the Washington Post, no one was more confident in the resurrection. Now, I'm not the Apostle Paul or Chuck Colson, and neither are you. But, do you know the power of the resurrection? Are you living the power of the resurrection? I I would encourage you, you know, if you're struggling with any number of these things, boy, steep yourself in this wonderful passage. I have to quit. Let's pray. Lord... This is an an amazing passage. It's an amazing Bible. We are prisoners to our own idols if we do not know Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would remember that this good news about Jesus and the resurrection is for everybody. Young, old, rich, poor, Any background, any nation, any country, any city, any state, any color. It's for everybody. And it is is proven. It is rooted. It is launched by the resurrection. And it is conveyed. It is communicated. And it is lived through personal relationships with one another, most importantly, with you, who sent your Son so that you could have and would have a personal relationship with us. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We pray these things in his name. Amen.